You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. All right, we are here once again at the Riverwise Podcast. Remember that this is a discussion extending some of the different views of social justice, community activism, and then the change that we want to see throughout the community, uh, led and anchored by the Bog Center, but definitely connecting with so many other creatives such as myself, Kari Frazier. I'm your host today. And today I have a very special guest that has been a friend to the Bog Center, uh, Jimmy and Grace, and so much of the work that has been done in activism and different things of indigenous and tribes. I have Roberto Mendoza. Roberto Mendoza is from the Muscogee tribe, also the Paripacha tribe and Cooperation Tulsa. I'm sure he's going to tell me about the announciations and make sure that everything is cool and set up and here for a discussion really of what's happening with indigenous peoples today uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, throughout the Midwest here in Michigan and the Detroit area and the nation itself uh, going down to Mexico. So today, Roberto, how are you feeling today? Good. All right. All right. So uh, with that introduction, the first question that I have is your relationship with uh, the Box Center and just the Box family. Uh, what connected you to the work of the Box family? Well, back in the 80s, I was living in Maine and um, I read one of the pamphlets that they put out uh, their organization at the time was called NOR, National Organization for an American Revolution. And I wrote to them and gave them my phone number. And Grace replied and said that, you know, we they had an island uh, retreat or house on an island in Maine, which they visited there every summer. And they invited me to come down there since I was already in Maine and meet them, which I did. And uh, we connected really well. And then she invited me to come to a, uh, what did, I can't remember the name of the, the uh, event, but it was sort of like, oh yeah, it was a cadre school. Mm -hmm. So I came to that. And um, eventually I moved away from Maine. I, I think I went to California and some other places. Mm -hmm. And I met Jimmy and Grace here in Detroit and had a lot of good discussions with them. And we had a history. Like, they, I invited them to come with me to uh, Big Mountain in Arizona so the Navajo people were fighting against a big coal company, Peabody Coal, which has taken all their, most of their water. So they came out there, and I remember Jimmy especially. He was in his 70s by then. And we would come to this, we went to this native camp of some young men. And he, he was out there and he noticed that they needed some woodcut. So he grabbed a, an axe and started chopping wood. And they were impressed by that. You know, this 70-year-old mm -hmm. guy just, you know, automatically started helping. And, yeah, I, Jimmy was a great person. He was sort of like uh, a, a father figure to me. Mm. I, I really appreciated him. Mm. And Grace was this brilliant thinker. Uh, but I do remember them arguing. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> they had some pretty fierce arguments. Okay. 
Now, within this, uh, to be drawn to that, to write to the the works of the box, you are already moving towards revolution. What sparked in you uh, this interest in revolution? Well, it started way back in 1969 when I was a young man in San Francisco, California. Mm-hmm. And I was working at the American Indian Center. And then I, a group of Native people, young people, came to the center to organize uh, what they called the takeover of Alcatraz Island. Hmm. Uh, and since I was there, I joined in, listened to them. They're mostly students from San Francisco State College. Um, the main organizer was a native man from New York State, a Mohawk tribe. <clears throat> and I, I uh, joined them when they occupied the island, and that was a radical moment for me. Uh, at the time I was there, I was also starting to be radicalized by the Black Panther Party, reading their, reading about them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just across the bay in in Oakland. And I was part of the San Francisco Newsreel group because I was a filmmaker. Anyway, I, I shot some footage of Alcatraz. And then I went uh, up to Northern California to shoot a documentary on the tribe up there that was fighting to reclaim their land from Pacific, Pacific Gas and Electric. So that was what was but being in San Francisco in 1969. You couldn't help but being radicalized hmm. because it was the Black Panthers were active, uh, the, the women's liberation movement was active, the gay liberation movement was, was starting to happen, and uh, I also joined another group of mainly Salvadorians, who who seven of them were accused of killing a policeman. Hmm. They that the group was called Los Siete de la Raza. And uh, turned out that actually one of the policemen had shot the other, mm. and they tried to blame it on these young men. Yeah. So that was another radical movement uh, that that influenced me. And then I moved to Maine. I got married, had some kids, and that's where I, I first heard about the Bogs and got to know them. And and race also helped me because I was writing a pamphlet about 66 pages about the Native movement, which is fairly radical at the time, uh, because I was leaning toward Marxism. I understood imperialism and capitalism, and a lot of Native people in the movement weren't at that stage of thinking. Mm-hmm. So she helped me edit that, and they put together that little book, very small, 60 pages, and made it one of their publications from NOR. Okay. And uh, just growing up, uh, being indigenous, what what was that experience like as a child that that led you into something and seeing revolution and knowing that change needs to happen for your people? Well, poverty for one thing. Um, My mother, after she got divorced from my dad, who was Chicano. She moved back with her family, parents in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And then she met a, a Muskogee man who they got married. But he only had a fourth grade education and not only, the only work that he could find there was farm work, mm-hmm. which paid like $2 an hour or something like that. 
he, he made maybe $20 a month a week, $20 a week. Which, and it wasn't constant. So we were, there were times when we were almost going hungry and we'd have to go to his sister's and eat there. And then we'd always look forward to the church meetings. We lived near a church, native church, because there was always food there. And I remember one time walking to town with my mother, and I just sort of realized she was so poor and so so without opportunities, or what people call agency. And I made it a, a promise to myself that I would, when I grew up, I was going to help her get out of that situation. And um, growing up in that in that community, uh, seeing the poverty, uh, did you? When did you notice some of those differences? Because you know, if things are normalized, you you sometimes may not even necessarily know that this is not such a common experience. Well, I started getting seeing racism at an early age when I was about six years old, going to school and. We were, we were living at that little town at the, pi- at the time, and I would walk by this this uh, house, and there was this white guy that was living there. And uh, me and my sister, we walked by. And one day he pulled, he called me over. He said, "Come here." So I came over there, and he said, "What if I cut one of your ears off?" <laughs> and I couldn't really understand why he would say that, but it was just obviously racism. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in in school, the the kids, uh, like I was the smartest kid in that room, in that class, but they wouldn't really, when they asked a difficult question, they'd always ask this other guy, this white guy, you know, they wouldn't call on me. And then I then I was picked on, and made fun of, called mm-hmm. names, and I wanted to get out of there because I was being bullied by one of the uh, well a couple of the white guys kids mm-hmm. you know so I went to uh, spend the summer with my cousin in Oklahoma City it was the first time I was ever been in a city spent the summer there but he was my cousin was basically becoming a small time criminal hmm. and he was casing this uh, pawn shop which we was planning to burglarize and we did and we stole Four, uh, three or four guns, 22 pistols with ammunition and knives. Hmm. And then we would go down the river and practice shooting. And uh, he would say, well, the cops come, we'll shoot them. I don't hmm. think he would have, but that it was just kind of this bravado. And his father was an alcoholic who would get a job. And then when he got paid, he'd go out on, on a drunk for two or three days. And then he would come back and then he would beat the older boy. Hmm. And uh, that I guess that's why he, he was full of anger. And anyway, that I took that gun back with me. And I remember going out with my cousin and my brother. And we were in, living in a rural Oklahoma by that time. And we'd practice with a gun. And my mother would say, did you hear those hunters shooting? And we'd say, yeah, but we didn't see him. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a period where I started to uh, lie, for one thing. And the gun made me feel powerful. I remember we were at a, 
the neighbor's pond, stock pond, and we would go swimming there. And the the, the boy who, the son of the, the people who owned that pond, came down with a twenty-two rifle, and he was one of the kids that were always uh, bullying me. And he said, "Get out of there! You're just going to make the water muddy, and the cows are going to get get sick." And my cousin was with me, and he said, he wished it to me, he said, we shouldn't let him talk to us like that. We got a gun, too. But something told me that if I pulled that gun out, bad things would happen. So I didn't. Huh. I was humiliated, but I did not want to pull that gun out and, you know, because who knows what would happen. Yeah. So, so this childhood where you see, uh, you know, as as usually, I, I expect crime is a is is a symptom of 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 a broken society. I, it's rare that I believe crime is just uh, predestined for most. Yeah. Um, you speak of the poverty. Um, you speak of some of the family dynamics. Uh, let, let's let's go into you stepping into that role, organizing indigenous people. What was it that led you to say, okay, I, I see some of these things very similar for many of us, and now I want to organize us? Well, I guess um, seeing the young people organizing around to take over the Alcatraz Ireland uh, got me thinking about it and I started reading about native people and I read about uh, the Iroquois people and I was R Richard Oaks was the, he was the guy from, the, from that tribe the uh, Mohawks and he was the leader of the Alcatraz occupation he was one of the main leaders and I realized I was telling him about his own tribe he didn't even know about like the great law of peace and the Iroquois Confederacy. He, he didn't know a lot of that. So I told him about that, and that got me, made me think that, you know, I had some something to contribute. And I eventually I became uh, with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. I don't know if you know her. She wrote uh, Indigenous History of the United States. She and I were co-chairs of the San Francisco American Indian Movement. And we were both Marxists. She was more Marxist than I was, but I, I, I had already read some Capital when I was in college. And I, when I was in University of Missouri, I also had a, a Marxist professor. Uh, and then I met these Marxists. My first Marxist Jewish guy from New York City was there at the university. And I joined the Students for Democratic Society. And then I, I hung out with those people. Mm -hmm. And was I even wrote an article of comparing existentialism with Marxism, and uh, I was reading Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. So, college was a way of expanding my thinking. I remember in high school in Kansas City, Missouri, where I was living with my dad at the time. There was this young Jewish girl in my class, uh, chemistry class. She had a book called Rebels and Ancestors by Maxwell Gizmar. And I, I started looking at it. She said, well, you can borrow that. And I read it. And it was about people like John Dos Passos, mm. Ernest Hemingway, Sinclair Lewis, radical Jewish, mainly Jewish, radical writers of the 30s. And before that, I was thinking that Gary Vogel, Gary, <laughs> Barry Goldwater, sounded like he sounded like he had some good ideas. 
because I was just like 17 years old. Mm -hmm. But when I read that book, I realized, you know, I'm working class. Mm -hmm. And I I started hanging out with the SDS people. And then I became a socialist. And and the the point of you organizing something, like I say, when when did you step into a leadership position? When did you step into a position where it's like uh, we as indigenous people need to be thinking in this way? We need to be having uh, these human rights afforded to us. What was what was that catalyst and what was the group? Well, that was the American Indian Movement in San Francisco. At first it was justice based in San Jose, but Roxanne and I, since we were both Marxists in the group in San Jose, we were mostly traditional. Traditionalists, we decided to have our own group in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But we didn't do a whole lot. We, we helped pr- pr- publish a small newsletter mm-hmm. from the, at the Indian Center and use their printers. Okay. And uh, that's how I learned how to lay out, mm-hmm. do layout. And then I also... Um, well, I was like in my 20s, so I wasn't really have a lot of experience, but mm-hmm. I, I just remember that probably another thing that we talked I talked about is I made a, a picture of, I took some articles and pasted them, on a, what do you call those when you paste things on uh, together? A collage. A collage, mm-hmm. yeah showing the links between the Vietnamese people and the native people and showing that they were both oppressed by this imperialist system. And uh, and who did you share this collage with? I mean, how did you go about showing this to people? Did you just, you I put know? It, it, it was in the San Francisco American Indian Center Okay, where me and some other people were, you know, working together. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I also wrote an article about the Vietnam War and connected it to our people, Native people. And, and you talk about having a, a publication and getting the word out. So that's that's one iteration. Yeah. On to, you mentioned your family, you're in Maine, you, you connect with the box. Uh, today, you're a part of Cooperation Tulsa and, and back in the Midwest. What led you back to the Midwest and, and why do you think it's essential today to organize in Cooperation Tulsa and just the indigenous people of Oklahoma? Well, I was actually born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and uh, but I was lived most of the time in rural Oklahoma when I was growing up. And then I spent 20, 30 years away from Oklahoma in California and New York City and uh, Portland, Maine, uh, Minneapolis, some other places. Uh, and I was in the Green Party. I was in the bioregional movement. I rose to the top leadership of both of those groups. Uh, I met Murray Bookchin, who influenced our group to a large extent back way back then because I was part of the Left Greens. And he was like our guru, so to speak. Uh-huh. And and when I was in Maine, I worked with another group. And we, I helped, I suggested that we have a... I was working with the bioregional group, and we I, we had uh, I went to their national gathering, and I suggested let's let's have the next gathering in Maine. Well, first I said let's have a, a bioregional gathering just for people in Maine, in the the bioregional movement there, and we did. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I said let's do the next national gathering of 
the Turtle Island Bioregional Movement. And I remember sitting at the table at one of the, at the campground that we were going to use. And I said to myself, in a year, there's going to be several hundred people here. And I remember a year later, they were there. (laughs) And I realized I made that happen. And one of the ways I made it happen that was made it easier was I learned to delegate. Somebody would say, you know, I have an idea. Why don't we do this and this and this? And I say, okay, you're in charge of it. Okay. <laughs> you can you can do it. You don't have to do it all by yourself. You can delegate so, it too. So the organizing from Maine, but what led you back to the Midwest? Why why back to Oklahoma? And why why is it important right now for cooperation Tulsa? Well, uh, it took me a while to get back to Oklahoma because I did not want to go back to a red state mm-hmm. that was Bible Belt and that was conservative, mm-hmm. racist, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my people were there. My tribe was there. My mother's people. Yeah. And uh, I had relatives there. And, and after a while, I could not afford to live in California. Yeah. <laughs> it's too damn expensive. I tried yeah. three or four times, and it, it just got worse and worse. Yeah. So I realized, you know, I need to go back and r- work with my people it, and work with the people in Oklahoma. When did you uh, When did you go back to Oklahoma? Uh, this iteration. It was only about ten years ago. Okay, so for about ten years in cooperation, Tulsa. When did you start that? Why is that important? That only start. I only started that about uh, two years ago. Okay, two thousand nineteen. Because uh, I went to a, a congress here in Detroit, uh, uh, called by the Symbiosis Network. It's a national, it's an international network of people that are f- sort of like followers of Murray Bookchin and also look toward um, the Zapatistas and the people in Rojava, Kurdistan, as as models of what we'd like to do. And I was so inspired by that. By that time, I had developed a uh, seminar called Indigenous Values versus Capitalist Values, which I presented at the Detroit meeting. And... I had been producing that in in California and New Mexico and Detroit, Oklahoma, and I was getting invited to go to, Cal- to Washington State, but then COVID came along. Um, but I came back with that idea that I want to start a group that we would be part of this network. And at first I called it uh, the Green Corn um the, the name Green Corn was part of the, the name hmm. because in Oklahoma, there was a Green Corn Rebellion back in 1917, which was the first time that black people, native people, and white people joined together in a revolutionary movement. Hmm. And they didn't succeed, of course, but I thought that we needed to have that part of our history. So I I just started writing about it on my Facebook page and... I started talking to a few people, and uh, at first it was only like two or three people that joined me, but gradually more joined and more. Now we have like 10 people, and it's slowly growing. And I I realized that I needed to work with my people, which are in Oklahoma. They were very, they are very oppressed. They're very colonized, unfortunately. And uh, But I realized that... I could make a difference because I'm from there and I know yeah. them. I have relatives there. 
and you also have years of experience and yes. uh, teachings, uh, readings, and working with uh, giants in revolution and organizing. Uh, you have a heck of a skill set to bring back there. How, how how receptive have the people and the indigenous people there in Tulsa been, uh, and then just the surrounding areas to the work that you've um, that you've been doing? Well, I think I need to step back a little bit. When I first got to Oklahoma, I started a group called Idle No More Central Oklahoma. I don't know if you heard about the group Idle No More. It came out of Canada, among Canadian Native people, and it spread to the United States. And at first, it was just people, Native people getting together and having rallies in the middle of like a shopping mall with their drums and everything. Uh, but I wanted to do more than that, so I, I started this organization and I it wasn't as clear as I wasn't as clear as I am now, you know, about how to do it. But it did. It turned out to be the largest native group in the state of Oklahoma mm. when it lasted, which was lasted about a year and a half. Okay. But then two of the women started fighting with each other, hmm. and then one of them left, and that after that the organization kind of fell apart. And yeah. but this this time I just I ran into some really good people. Um. There's this one woman who's uh, married and has two children. She's just hardworking. She's also a member of the Cherokee tribe. She doesn't look Cher- she doesn't look it, but she is a tribal member. And she is she has done so much for our group. She contacted people in um, the the church, uh, AME Baptist Church. Well, maybe it wasn't Baptist. It was the AME Church in North Tulsa. That was the surviving church of the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. Mm-hmm. And the pastor there, uh, well, a friend of ours was already a member of that church. She was a white, this white woman. And we convinced them to let us do a garden, build a garden in the back of the church, which we did. And we got like 15, 20 people helping us, black, white, and myself. And we built it, and we had this black man who was uh, an expert in gardening he showed us how to build it and all the stuff we needed to put in the soil things like mm-hmm. that and that turned out to be a great garden and it was also great because people started joining us because they wanted to be part of something like that and it was it is and was a community garden you know it wasn't yeah. just for the church the church also gave food out every week but then now they could give out fresh food, yeah, organic food. That's uh, that's deep. And, and as you talk about this organizing and the experiences, uh, we get to a close of this interview. If if someone wants to support and help the efforts of Cooperation Tulsa, how would they reach out? How could they give? How could they, you know, uh, lend a hand? Well, we have a Facebook page just called Cooperation Tulsa for one. And then we have another page called Cooperation Tulsa Forum where we discuss things and put articles in. Uh, we did we did have a fundraiser, and I don't know if it's even over yet, but we were trying to get money to get a, uh, a warehouse and office space. Mm-hmm. And we raised $3,000 the last I knew. Mm. We might have raised more since I've, I've been away for yeah. uh, 10 days now mm-hmm. visiting my family. Okay. So, and... Uh, so, 
two more questions. Uh, the first one I'm going to ask, uh, you know, what brings you to Detroit for this visit? And then the next one is going to be, you know, if you have anything to share, please share. But uh, the first one, uh, what brings you to Detroit for this visit? Well, I was on my way to Maine and I knew Marsh, uh, this guy, Mason, uh, he and his, his girl, well, his wife now, I think they're married. They were the main organizers of the first Congress of the symbiosis group that I came to yeah. back in 2019. Mm-hmm. So I was going to stop by and see him, check, see what they're doing, because we're part of the same symbiosis network. But also, uh, when, I, when I came through, I was going to stay with him when I was on my way to Maine, and uh, he didn't. He had other people coming, so I said, well, I'll find somebody else. So I connected with Rich Feldman, who I've known since... Yeah, thirty years ago, and uh, I helped them do Detroit Summer. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I stayed with him, and he's a, he was was the one that said, "Roberto, I want when you come back, can you do a podcast?" I said, uh, "Yeah, and that's yeah. why I'm here." Okay, thank you, thank you. And uh, and then what else? Uh, what else is going on? What would you like to share? If there's anything that you want to share with the listeners and uh, the people that are supporting and the people that should be supporting? Well, I put a lot of emphasis on indigenous values, and I I was inspired by a speech Martin Luther King gave. Uh, I think it's 1968 called this, uh, Beyond Vietnam, mm-hmm. and one of the things that he said was, "We as a nation." must undergo a radical revolution of values. And that just kind of stuck and got me thinking. And that's when I started looking at my people's values. And then I also looked at values underlying capitalism because I realized most people don't even know that capitalism has values. And a lot of people think that the values that capitalism does have are good. They're all talking about, oh, they create jobs, billionaires create jobs. But I, when I laid it out, the values side by side in a chart. Native values, uh, on one side, capitalist values are greed, native values sharing. Uh, capitalist values, individualism, native values, community. Uh, capitalist values, retributive justice, punishment, isolation, native values, restorative justice, bringing people back into the community that harm, do harm. And I had a whole list, and that's what I, I teach that around the country. And that's that to me is that what I have what I see that has to, if we're going to have a revolution in this country, we have to first decolonize our thinking from capitalist values, because we all carried we all carry them, mm-hmm. including myself. We were all raised in a capitalist country with those values, and we still carry them in our minds. And if we're not aware of that, we'll keep acting on those values. But if we can become aware of what they are, then we can have a clear choice between two sets of values. And it, it's clear to me that, for instance, like climate change, capitalism is not going to solve climate change, but indigenous values is what is needed. Because indigenous values are connected to the earth. They're earth-based. And our native people, we always lived in harmony with the earth before colonization. But that's the same true, same, that's the same thing that happened with African Americans. Before you were taken over from Africa, your people, most of your people, not all, most of your people live just like we we lived here, tribally, hunters and gatherers and farmers, and we had direct democracy. And those are indigenous values, but I also realized that indigenous values are similar around the world. 
You look at indigenous people in in uh, Asia, and uh, uh, the Middle East, like the Kurds. The Kurds are indigenous. Mm -hmm. They have similar values, and they've been, they've all been colonized, but they've been they do have similar values. Of that the main thing is that they're earth based, and the women carry the culture. Yeah, and uh, among the white people, Amer Europeans and European Americans, what happened to them was that. Uh, when, when the, the Mormon Empire came and took over their lands, and when Christianity followed, they, they, the, the the white people, men mainly, decided they wanted to take over the take over the role of women, who are, who are in charge of the culture, and healing, and so they they called all of the women, not all of them, but the the women that were healers, and uh, they they killed them. Mm. They burned them at the stake. They tortured them, and that's 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 why how the white people, Europeans and European Americans, lost the connection with their pagan roots, mm. which were indigenous, mm. and they need to reclaim that. Deep, deep. Thank you so much, Roberto. This was a great discussion. Thank you.